Luke 17, verse 20, it says, Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst or within you. Lord God, as we come before you in your precious word, we ask that um, our hearts would be quickened, our minds would be focused on your soon return, that our lives would be in line, that we wouldn't be those who would be caught off guard by that moment, Lord, whether it be when our time is done here on earth or at your soon arrival, Lord. We just ask for the Spirit to just quicken things that need to be quickened in our hearts and solidify, Lord, our faith in you and our decision to follow after you, that we wouldn't be tossed to and fro, Lord, but we'd be people deciding and willfully uh, following the faith that we profess. So we ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Pharisees, uh, chiding Jesus, basically came to him and said, hey, uh, when's this kingdom coming about? And Jesus says, you, you, you're, not, you're not seeing it. You're not getting it. The Jews were under the assumption that when the Messiah would come, that he would set up a physical kingdom. At the time, at that time, uh, where the covenants given to uh, Abraham in Genesis 12 and to David in Second Samuel chapter 7, as well as the, the promises in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, they would all culminate in the Messiah's return, coming, ridding them of the Jews, of their oppressors, um, pushing him, pushing them off, and then setting up a period of peace that would be everlasting on the earth, so to speak. That's what they were looking forward to, a literal kingdom of God on the earth established by the Messiah. The Jews had been waiting for that government to come, to be ushered in by the Messiah as promised in verses like Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, which we're really familiar with this time of year. It says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time forward or forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so a Jew reading these scriptures are going to look at that and then they're going to anticipate a literal Messiah walking in and literally establishing a kingdom upon the throne of David um, that there will be no end to it the kingdom of God that would be like no other, a kingdom uh, ruled by one of David's descendants. And this promise was given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13, where God says to David through the prophet, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David, you want to build a house for me? (laughs) Ain't going to work out. I'm going to build a house for you. Uh, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, an everlasting kingdom from the descendants of David. So it was to be this everlasting kingdom ushered in by a descendant of David, the Messiah. Isaiah 11 speaks of what kind of kingdom this would be. Um, I notice I'm quoting Isaiah a lot. A lot about the kingdom in Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah 11 speaks about this messianic rule in that established kingdom, what it would look like. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father, so a descendant from Jesse. Uh, Jesse. From, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on, upon him. And here you have the sevenfold manifestation of the Spirit upon Jesus Christ. You can count if you want seven. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with with his ears. Verse 4, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the, pear, with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put his hand into the viper's nests. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. I mean, I'm reading those verses and I'm going, bring it on. I'd like to go play at the cobra. I mean, the other things, I mean, just... just the rule in the reign of the Messiah is going to be so complete, so thorough, it's going to change everything. And as Jesus is, as us, as the Jews are looking at these scriptures, they are longing for it. Can you imagine the oppression that they have being under the pagan governments and being exposed to the things that they're exposed to? They're longing for the Messiah to come, to set things straight. And that righteous rule of the Messiah as he rules with wisdom is declared there in Isaiah. So the Old Testament is really full. It's full of the promises of the physical, visible kingdom of God that the Messiah will uh, will establish as he rules from Jerusalem. And this is what the Jews were waiting for. However, they did not understand that these promises for Israel would be established at Jesus' second coming, not his first. And I know many uh, people who love the Lord uh, see things differently here. I, I, I believe that this, these things are established at His second coming. His first coming was to suffer and to die for the sins of many, to reconcile people to God so that He would populate that kingdom with believers. But the Jews skipped over those verses in the Old Testament that spoke of the suffering Messiah, and they read what they wanted to read. Anybody ever read their Bible like that? Anybody hurting, and you're trying to just go through, and you're, and you're, and you're not going through the verses about suffering, you're going through the verses about healing. Anyone? Oh, I, it's funny, I have an, I have an, old, test, uh, uh, an old, old Bible, and I, and I go through it, and, 
And you can see, you know, because I've been hurting for quite a while, where when younger in my faith, I would just underline all the promise verses about God's going to heal me and all that stuff. Well, he decided not to. I skipped over the verses that the promises of you will suffer. And your strength is made perfect in my weakness. It was only later on that I, when, when I abandoned hope for all, all healing that I actually started understanding that God has greater purposes than just my physical um, pleasure. Amen. That's what maturity brings through suffering. It's pretty interesting if you let it. Sometimes it takes longer in us than others. Uh, I'll be witness to that. But His first coming was to suffer and to die for the sins of many, to reconcile you, to reconcile me to Himself. But the Jews, they skipped over those verses of that suffering Messiah, ones that were, were just plain in Scripture. And they would interpret them to mean, uh, you know, that it was the suffering of Israel or all these types of interpretations, or they just really wouldn't look at it. And you can see just plainly here, in, like in Isaiah 53, the first nine verses, they're all over the place. It's the only one I'm going to share with you right now. But it says, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem and surely He took our pain and bore our sufferings, and yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. I mean, 700 years before Christ... We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. And you're, and you're recalling him before Pilate. Why don't you talk? Why don't you say something? Why don't you stop this great injustice? He read his Bible. He knew what the Lord had called him to. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? They said, crucify him, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. These verses and others, they, they, they speak of a Messiah that would come and suffer for the sins of God's people, to some and suffer for, for you and for me. And those verses were downplayed as people were under oppression, had the Roman rule on them. They read what they wanted to read, and, and the rabbis were responsible for pushing a lot. The Pharisees were, were um, responsible for pushing a narrative instead of just teaching the whole counsel of God. The Jews wanted that physical deliverance. How many of you want that physical deliverance? Anybody this morning? Oh, Lord, in a heartbeat, yes. But they rejected that they needed a spiritual one. They desired a kingdom on the outside, but not from within. They wanted the outside kingdom, but they didn't want the inside kingdom. 
How many of you this morning want the outside kingdom, but you're coming to learn, I really don't want the inside kingdom? Jesus came the first time to establish the rule of God in the hearts of mankind. And at his second coming, he would establish the physical kingdom in what I believe is called the millennial reign of Christ, where at Jesus' return, he will, he will rule and reign for a thousand years as the Old Testament describes, and the lion will lie down with the lamb. And so Jesus makes this distinction to the Pharisees who were mocking him, saying, hey, I don't see this kingdom. Where is it? You don't look very royal to me. Back in Luke 17, 20, Jesus says to them, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst, or some of your translations say it is within you. It's, it's not physical, it's spiritual. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God at that time is not going to be visible to them. They couldn't see it. It wasn't physical. There wasn't going to be a coronation, a ceremony, a king coming in to take his throne on a white horse. Not this time, not at that time. That was not what was going to go on. The king was born in a manger, humble, not regal. That's why we celebrate this time of year. You figure the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the very reason for your being in existence and every thought, for the, for the deepest, most profound thing at the bottom of the sea to, the, to, to something as far away as we can ever imagine, that the reason for their existence is, is found in Him. And all things were created by Him and for Him. You figure that, that there would be a, a mighty coronation as the King of all the world comes in and, and presents Himself to His creation. But how does He come into the world? In a manger. Humility, total humility. He grew up in a despised town, the town of Nazareth. Joseph and Mary were poor. He didn't have the, the monetary lineage, you know. He, he, was, he came from the descendants of David, no doubt, and of Abraham, and obviously of Adam. Matthew and Luke talk about that. But when, when you go and you see the offerings that Mary and Joseph uh, did, gave, they were, they were pigeons or they were birds, you know, that, that there were three steps of offerings that people could give. They could give pigeons, or they can give a lamb, or they can give a bull. And depending on your, your income back, they gave pigeons. They were poor people. Jesus would be homeless during his ministry. He wasn't, didn't have the 747 with his name on the side flying around, you know, Doing the thing, he was going from town to town, living in people's homes, depending upon hospitality, depending upon the Spirit's provision. Isaiah tells us, as we already read, that it was, there was nothing good-looking about him. He didn't have the cool hair. He didn't have the neat clothes. He wasn't your quintessential hip pastor. There was nothing about him when you looked at him that you would go, oh, I'm going to follow that guy. He wasn't European cool Jesus. You know, that steel jaw and all that. No, none of that. <laughs> there was nothing about him. No former comeliness, it says. 
that we should desire Him or seek Him. Jesus wasn't accepted, but He was rejected by the people who were supposed to be His people, the people of God, right? He wasn't clothed in royal array, was He? But rather, He was beaten and He was stripped of His clothes and He hung naked. He was mocked. He wasn't crowned with gold and precious stones, was He? What was He crowned with? Crown of thorns. Crucified. This is not the king that the world expects. He was the visible king of an invisible kingdom. He's our king. Jesus said, as he was being questioned by Pilate about being the king of the Jews, and Jesus responded in John eighteen thirty six. he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. If this were my kingdom, believe me, there would be a fight. This is not my kingdom. And so the Pharisees were saying mockingly, well, where is this? You know, put up or shut up. And Jesus is saying, this isn't the essence of my kingdom. It's spiritual first. It's a kingdom of the heart. That's where God begins. And so, too, many come to Christ expecting those ex- that external kingdom. They want to see the external change. They want to see politics change. They want to see the government work the way it should. They want to see all these types of things. I mean, we all want to see things better. I understand that. But that is not the kingdom of God. That is not for this age nor this time. Think of the uh, Jews who were under the horrific Roman oppression at that time. Think of the slavery that was going on unchecked at that time. Paul didn't say, stop being a slave. He said, if you can get your freedom, get it. He said, now this is how you honor Christ in a Christless world. You're in a bad marriage. This is how you honor Christ in a Christless world. You're oppressed. This is how you honor Christ in a Christless world. This is not your home. You know, people, they sour when they come to Christ and they find out that Jesus is after the heart of a person and that they aren't going to necessarily have all the other things in this life. The narrow becomes pretty, the, the gate becomes very narrow at that point. And they realize they're not going to fit in. And the promise of a, a, a future kingdom that begins in the heart today, what will culminate in, an, in a f- future physical body, in a, in a future physical kingdom, with a physical king forever and ever and ever, is something that is not what they want. They want the here and they want the now. And so in verse 22, Jesus wants His disciples to understand the difference between that first coming and the second coming and warn them that there's going to be a gap between now and then. What, what happens between now and then? What do you need to watch out for? Because we long for Christ's return. Does anybody like not long for Jesus to come here and set things straight? Oh, I long for it. 
He says in verse 22, then he said to his disciples, the time is coming. So he's not speaking to the Pharisees anymore. He says, you guys aren't going to see it. But he says, then the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see. And people will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Don't go running off after them. As Jesus is approaching the cross in Jerusalem, he's making way, he's warning his disciples, and I believe for us too, future disciples, that there is going to be a gap of time between his ascension and when he comes and touches down, when he comes back. And the disciples who had been with Jesus, who'd experienced his, uh, his miracles, who, um, as First John said, who had handled the word of life, they had touched him, they had been around him, they knew him, they knew his mannerisms, everything about him, they had handled the word of life, they were anticipating, they longed for him. And because of that, they had risked, there was a great risk of them falling prey to false messiahs which Jesus said there would be many in Matthew 20, uh, 24, where Jesus says, people will tell you there he is, or here he is, do not go running after them, right? There are going to be many of them. And so Jesus warns us that there will be imposters. People will say that the Messiah is here or there. Don't go running after them, Jesus says. Sadly, today, so many people run after. I know we kind of look at those strange cults, you know, you've got weird things going on and you've got this Messiah figure at the middle of them and, and we all look and go, oh, well, that's crazy, you know. But we do it with political people. We do it with just tons of other... I mean, we just, you know, fill in your poison, okay? Before we start throwing stones. We assume that, that there's a Savior in the room. Let me tell you, if, if, you're, if you're any of us, we're not it. Amen? Amen. <laughs> We are not going to usher in anything apart from the Lord Himself and His plan and His sovereignty working out. But people do follow false messiahs. You can Google them. There's a lot of them. I know uh, National Geographic did something on five of them in all different parts of the world. It's amazing how people flock to these personalities and what they're sinking and what they're longing for. People long to see Christ, and, and they follow after these imposters. And so the question is, how were they to know when Jesus has returned? They didn't have TV. He wasn't going to FaceTime them, all that stuff. How would they know? And how how do we know? Are we going to miss it? And Jesus clears it up in verse 24, for the Son of Man in His day will be like what? Lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. Our Lord's going to come back and it's going to be like lightning. Translation, you're not going to miss it. Everyone will see it. Have you ever been there and and you've just all of a sudden saw a flash of lightning across a dark sky? I mean, even if you weren't looking in that direction or whatever it might be, it's like something happened. What was that? But this is just a metaphor for it is going to be unmistakable. Matthew 24, 29 gives us a little more detail. It says, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
unmistakable. The heavens are going to be shaken and the sign will be in the heaven. They're going to see Christ come and they're going to mourn. The world will mourn. It is going to be awesome in every sense of the word. The return of Christ is going to be unmistakable, brothers and sisters. And I believe the book of Revelation in Matthew 24 as well lays out um, the time leading up to the return of the Lord called the tribulation, which will culminate in the visible, unmistakable return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Verse 25, but first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. The first coming of the Messiah He came on a donkey to suffer and purchase the citizens of heaven through his blood. The second coming, he's going to be on a war horse. First time he came in lowly on a donkey, he's coming back on a war horse. To establish his rule, it will be sudden and it will take the world by force. Make no mistake, your little European Jesus is also a mighty warrior. And with the word of his mouth, he will strike his enemies. That's our Jesus. Then in verse 26, Jesus describes what it's going to be like in the time leading up to his return. He gives them some indicators. Verse 26, this isn't really helpful Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of Son of Man. People were eating, and they were drinking and marrying and being uh, given in marriage. So uh, guys are going to be marrying, women are going to be given in marriage up to the day. Noah entered the ark, that's what happened. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. So those are the precursors. Life is going to be happening, and then boom, it's done. Thank you, Jesus. No, this isn't the full picture. But in the season leading up to Christ's return, and I believe in the midst of the tribulation, people are going to be living their lives, and their hearts are going to be so hard towards God, they aren't going to even realize much of what's going on. The normal day-to-day events of life will be going on. They'll be eating and drinking and marrying and being given a marriage, and all that will be going on right up to when Christ returns. And then the trump will sound, and the day of the Lord will be upon the world. Now, we also have to know this is not a full picture. We think you know, we're not drawing a, a real rosy picture. It's not a rosy picture of what the world's going to be like at that time. People are going to be absolutely depraved. That's what was going on in the days of Noah. In Genesis 6, it gives us this snapshot of that the world was ripe for judgment right before that happened. In Genesis 6, verse 5, says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. If that does not describe what is going on now, increasingly so, I do not I can't help you. We are increasingly evil. The thoughts of men are evil all the time. We are just like in the days of Noah. Life was going on, but wickedness saturated the society in the days of Noah. Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. And so it will be before Christ comes. And the Lord gives us a second example, verse 28. So not just the, in the days of, that came up to Noah, that's what it's going to be like before 
Christ came. He says, in the same, it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the, uh, but the day that Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It'll be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Now, we know that the reason that the cities of the plain were judged was because, uh, as we read in Genesis 18.20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that, the, that I, as I'm reading here, the angel of the Lord will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And we think we read later in Jude, or maybe it's Peter, I can't remember, I referenced it later, but that uh, it was because they were just totally given over to sexual morality. It was, it was just rampant. These men of the city, and yes, there was all the normal things going on in life, but they were so given over that when the angels came to the city, they wanted to rape the angels. And Peter talks about that. I mean... They were just gone. But for them, the daily life was going on. That's how it was until Lot left and judgment came. Jesus says in verse 30, it'll be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Verse 31, and on that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down and get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Lot's wife is a, is a warning for, to those of us who think we can still hold on to a love for the world and be saved. Jesus said, whoever tries to keep their life will what? And I assume that if we try to keep our life, we will what? Lose it. But if we lose our life, what will happen? We will save it. And I believe verses 31 through 33 paints a clear picture of how we are to live in light of Christ's return. We are to live unattached to this world. His kingdom is our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our king does not yet rule these lands, though. We're living as foreigners. But notice also that both Noah and Lot were removed before judgment. I think that's an interesting point to note. This is why many believe that the rapture of the church will happen before the Great Tribulation. Different people see that differently, and, and I understand that. And, and, and we can still break bread, you know? And like I said, I, I, am, I, am, a pre, uh, I am a pre-tribulation rapture person. And if that doesn't work, I immediately go to mid and then I go to post, and then all millennial, right? So that's, that's my plan. I think that's, that works out pretty good. A lot of great people see it differently. We need to have humility. Amen? But it is interesting how the righteous get removed and then judgment comes. And that's my hope. When Lot was in Zor, the fires came from heaven and destroyed the cities of plain. When Noah was inside the, the ark, then God exacted judgment. But Lot's wife looked back. said, remember Lot's wife. 
Remember Lot's wife, church? She was going through the motions. It says that he grabbed their hands and dragged them along. They didn't want to go. And even then, he was negotiating about which city he would go to. And the angel's like, all right, I won't destroy that city. Why? Because the righteous were in it. Boy, there's a lot there. But Lot's wife looked back. She was going through the motions, but her life was wrapped up in that world and in that city. And she was judged with it. Where is your heart today, church? Are we like Lot's wife where we are going through the motions, but truly our hearts are in this world? Remember Lot's wife, Jesus said, verse 34, I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together and one will be taken and the other left. Now, I, I have, and many people, I believe, uh, believe this, this verse is, is attributed to the rapture. I, I, I've changed my view on that. I don't think so. Jesus just said in verse 33, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. And he, he says, using Lot's wife as an example of someone who has, kept, who has kept their life, they lost it. And so I tell you, one will be taken and the other one will be left. I think that's the context. The context is judgment. And so that word taken, as Marcus was letting me know, is kind of taken to, drawn towards as a violent snatching, as grabbing against someone's will, it seems. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 13 of the weeds, and he later explains the meaning beginning in verse 36 of Matthew 13. And this is what I believe the heart of this passage about one will be left, one will be taken. And there's several others, by the way. But verse 36 says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, and he said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels." And as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out His kingdom. Uh, He will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will be thrown with them into a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. So this picture of angels going through the earth, separating the wheat from uh, the shaft, so to speak. One is taken away and thrown in an everlasting fire, and one is not. One is taken and one is left. Which one are you this morning? (laughs) That's a crazy question. Jesus, why is He telling His disciples this stuff? He wants them to know something. He wants them to be thinking along these lines, right? Either you're inside the ark or you're out, right? You either have put your faith in Christ to save you and your home is with Him and you live like it or you are like Lot's wife, divided, 
like one who would go back and get something when he comes. Well, like us, like me, the disciples didn't get it. And they asked where this was going to happen in verse 37. (laughs) Where? I was reading that going, that doesn't make sense. That's right, because they don't get it. I don't get it either. Verse 3, where is this going to happen? Where where is this one person going to be taken and the other one's going to left? Where where is this stuff going to happen? Good question. It's going to be everywhere. Jesus answers verse 37, where? Uh, Where, they they asked, and he replied, where there is a dead body, there will (laughs) be... There the vultures will gather. Thank you, Jesus. It's very, you know, where? And he's just like, look for the birds and the dead bodies. Like, that's not helpful. No, it's going to be everywhere. In the days of the Son of Man, there will be tribulation on the earth, culminating with the return of Christ to set up His kingdom. And those who are His will be with Him, as Jude says, quoting Enoch, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of His holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and all of the defiant uh, words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. A lot of ungodly things will be judged. How then should we live in the light of Christ's return and in light of the warnings he gave us about Lot's generation and the generation of Noah? You know, I think of of, um, Lot's wife as a picture. You know, John the Baptist, he... he, um, he popped on the scene and he started preaching and people just started running. What do I do? And they were running away from, uh, there was just the fear of the judgment of God that they knew was coming. And and then John, they come towards him, he goes, who warned you to flee? And he calls people vipers and all this stuff. And People are just running from these things. You know, there was just a running away from sin, a repentance. There was a life that was lived like that. And, and, and that was to be the picture of going into the ark, the picture of, of, of running away from the city that's, that's going to be destroyed. And, and Lot's wife is that picture of that person who just kind of is meh, lukewarm. Jesus has some things to say about that, you know? So how are we to live? And I think just I want to close on on 1 Peter chapter 3. Flip there in your Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's one up in the seat back in front of you. 1 Peter chapter 3. We are people of the Word. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that one in the seat back in front of you is yours. It's yours. God bless you. That's why they're there. 1 Peter chapter 3. Sorry, 2 Peter chapter 3. I know. Well, it's interesting because my notes have a 1 next to the 2 and then Peter 3. So I'm like, 1, 2, 3, where am I? Because I do bullet points, I, you know. 2 Peter 3, how do we live? Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking I want you to recall the words spoken and passed by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires, and they will say, where's the coming he promised? 
Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it, as it has since the beginning of creation, verse 5. But they deliberately forgot that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and was formed out of water by water. And by these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed, was flooded and destroyed, verse 7. By the same word, the present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to, per- to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That day is going to come, and it is a day that we want to prolong in the sense that It'll be the end. No more. I want to keep reading, but you know, it's interesting. Methuselah, he's the oldest uh, living person in the, in the Bible, and, and his name means his death shall bring. And the day that he died, the flood came. And you wonder why Methuselah lived the longest, is because the day that he died, the flood came. God desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. He is long-suffering. Praise the Lord. But verse 10, the lightning verse, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since, this will be, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by a fire and the elements will melt with heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells, that future kingdom, the kingdom of God. Amen. So let's live that way. By God's grace. Amen, church? Father, we come before you. We thank you that your son did not mince words. He was straightforward about the things to come. And we thank you that we have been called out of a perverse and wicked generation of which we have contributed wholeheartedly, God. And by your grace, we repent and we believe in your son. And we are saved by grace. Thank you for Jesus coming into the darkness of this world and the humility that he has. And he comes to us this day in that same spirit of humility, not forcing himself upon us at this moment, but gently calling out to the wretchedest of sinner to come and receive forgiveness and mercy. If anyone wants to call upon the name of the Lord, God says you will not be saved. Call upon him, ask for his forgiveness, believe that a son died on the cross for your sins. Repent and turn from your sin and follow Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this gospel that is preached. We thank you for the good news of the kingdom. We thank you that we have a kingdom that will never end, and we are promised bodies that will fit these spirits you have given us, God. And we can't wait for your, your return, but in the meantime, God, we ask that many, many, many would come to know you. Call them out, Lord. Use us to bring them to your name.
as we preach the gospel and partner in the gospel together. That day is approaching, and we can't wait to see it, but at the same time, Lord, have mercy upon our relatives and the people that we love, God. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.